0: And it's not a popular opinion, but we're not afraid to say it.
1: Those are today's guests, general music teachers and podcast hosts, Tanya Lejeune and Carrie Nicholas, about to get real with some advice for first and second year teachers. Welcome to Music at Insights. I'm Alan Fire. Here with Steve Shanley.
2: Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators.
1: Steve, tell us about today's guests.
2: Tanya Lejeune and Carrie Nicholas are Kadai-inspired elementary music teachers who love to share songs, activities, lessons, and ideas for the music room, especially via their popular podcast, Music Teacher Coffee Talk, which began in 2017 and recently celebrated its 119th episode. Both Tanya and Carrie have been teaching for over 20 years and are currently elementary general music specialists in the Jefferson County Public Schools near Denver, Colorado. Find their full bios, show notes, and resources at musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan?
1: Oh, I loved Tanya's take on the teaching of rhythm. Those two minutes should be required listening, especially for secondary-level ensemble directors. What about you, Steve? Agreed.
2: Even though their specialty is elementary general music, I feel most of this episode is very applicable for all music educators, including advice for new teachers, suggestions for working with student teachers, avoiding burnout, and pandemic teaching strategies they've
1: held on to. This is yet another example of how elementary general music teachers really have stuff figured out, and we should get curious about their methods and their thoughts. Let's get to our conversation.
2: Carrie Nicholas, Tanya Lejeune, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for having us.
2: Let's start with the subject of burnout. Uh, Even when teaching is going well, it can be draining. And when it's not, well, we have record numbers of people leaving the profession and far too many unfilled positions right now. What has worked for you over the years? How do you avoid getting burned out or overwhelmed with the challenges you face as a teacher?
3: Carrie and I both have been teaching for quite a while upwards of 20 years. And yeah, burnout is something I'm very concerned about just with our profession in general, because there's a lot of people leaving. And after my first three years of teaching, I took a one year hiatus to reevaluate my career goals. And the best thing that I did was to find a community of like minded teachers. And that happened through my Kodai training that I got at Colorado State University. There, I really found not just the people, but a philosophy that I resonated with that I really saw as like a lifetime career goal of how I want to enrich the lives of other people. And I feel like it's more of a a mission statement in my life overall than just a job. And so I really committed to, you know, this is where I'm at. These are My music ed people, I like to go to conferences and keep going to workshops because that invigorates me and gets me excited about stepping into the classroom again. There's so many day-to-day things that'll just wear you down. So I think it's really important to have in mind your general mission statement and a philosophy to ground you and make it keep showing up.
0: And another thing to consider, especially for elementary music educators, is what we're doing outside of our day-to-day teaching, such as concerts and programs, just to be mindful of how many of those things we're scheduling. Maybe you'd Don't do a grade level performance with every single grade, every single year. Maybe it's an every other year thing. Um, Think about the extracurriculars you're being asked to offer, such as choir or, you know, ukulele clubs and things like that. And just really making sure that your priority is your day-to-day teaching in your classroom first, and then assess what else comes next after that.
2: Tanya, you said you took a year off after your first three years. Can you think of some things that were happening year three that were frustrating to you that you either handled differently or said no to or just had a different frame of mind for addressing when you return to the profession, the things that maybe burnt you out that caused that one year hiatus, that when you face those same challenges, uh, you approach them differently.
3: Yeah, I think really what got to me and the reason I left for a year is because I really felt like I didn't know what I was doing as far as teaching music. I thought children are coming in the room, they're having a good time, they're doing these musical activities, they're playing instruments, they're singing, they're playing games, but I didn't have a focus and I kind of felt like an overpaid camp counselor. And so with additional professional development, that really helped organize me and gave me a framework, so then I thought, you know what, now I'm really teaching music. I know where I'm going, I'm doing some backward design where I'm thinking about the end in mind of where I want the students to be, but overall I want them to love music like I love music. And also during that year, I kind of temped around a lot and saw what the rest of the world was doing and figured, you know, teaching music is pretty awesome.
1: How about you, Carrie? What were some things that you did to set some boundaries and say no to a few things yourself?
0: Yeah. Well, this actually came to me more during the pandemic, you know, when we were forced to not have programs, not have concerts. And so now coming out of that, I feel like this is an opportunity to set some new boundaries. And then I'm also in a new school community this year as well. So in the past, I always did a grade level performance for every single grade. And this year I'm saying, let's start with maybe two or three grades this year and then see how it goes after that. So for me, it's been about programs and concerts because those, as we know, take a lot of time to prepare.
2: Well, I'm guessing with your new positions this year, you're having to possibly take a closer look at your lesson planning. Maybe not as easy to just dust off something you used the year before since you're in brand new students, brand new school. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your approach to lesson planning and how it's evolved throughout your careers?
0: Sure. So as Tanya was saying, with with Kodai training, that really gave me the grounding that I needed when it comes to lesson planning. And so with, with Kodai Inspired Teaching, we create what are known as concept plans. So these are the songs and activities that I'm going to use to teach. Tantiti or Do, melodic concept Do. And the nice thing about that is once you've created those concept plans, those can go with you from place to place, from year to year, from school to school. And so you're not reinventing the wheel all the time. That said, though, we as Kodai educators also strive to make sure our song literature and activities are culturally relevant to the students that we are teaching. So obviously, there needs to be changes when you go to a new school community and you see that you have a large population of a certain student population, and you really want to make sure that you are, are meeting those students and providing those mirrors so they can see themselves through music, but then also showing them those doors where they can see other music from different cultures in different places in the world. So it's it's a balancing act. Yes, there's lots of things we can carry from year to year, but then in school to school, but then there's changes that need to be made as well to keep things fresh for ourselves. But I myself, something that I've learned throughout my career is I don't have to reinvent the wheel every single year. Once I have solid activities in place that I know work well with kids, it's okay to repeat those from year to year. And along the
3: same lines, I know both Carrie and I uh, have been focusing on having less teacher-centered music lessons and making sure that they're more student-centered. The students should be doing the work once we're in the classroom. The teacher's work comes in the planning. And so I really like to think of myself as more of a facilitator of the music happening, that I set it up well and then let them go because that's whoever is doing the cognitive load in the room at the time is gonna be the person who is learning the most. So I'm always trying to get more um, l- at the learner will language in my lesson plans rather than the teacher will.
2: Can you talk a little bit, Carrie, you mentioned needing to use music from uh, the the population that you're serving and, and that's an important part of the Kadai philosophy. But how? how? How did you go about when you got into your new community figuring out what kind of music might be appropriate and relevant?
0: Well, I'm still working on it because I actually haven't seen the students yet in my new community. but I do know, for example, I met one family as they were walking through the hallway before school, taking taking a tour, and they're a family from the Ukraine. So I know I definitely want to reach out to that family. I always ask the students, can you sing me a song that you know from growing up? You know, And always. sometimes they're ready to do that, sometimes they're not. And if not, that means I do a little bit of homework, and I might look for a folk song or a traditional song. And then outside of class, not putting that kid on the spot in front of other kids, I might approach that student and say, hey, I learned this song. Do you recognize recognize this song because sometimes there's variants and they might know it, but they might know a slight variant. So just doing your research outside of school, there's so many wonderful resources out there to find folk music from throughout the world, but also popular music from throughout the world as well. It's not just about traditional folk music, but we can also easily just find traditional music from many different cultures and countries through YouTube and Spotify. So um, that's usually my approach is doing some homework, talking to the students, seeing if they recognize the music. and things that resonate with them.
3: Yeah, I've often caught students um, outside at recess and I'm thinking specifically specifically about a group of second grade girls who are singing and playing a game that I'm not familiar with. And so I'll approach them and I'll say, hey, you know, I already have the relationship with these students and say, can I record you? Can I take a video of you doing this song? I don't know this one. And most of the time, they're just thrilled to do that. And it for me, it's really interesting to go and see if I can track that down, um, because children, they're making their own music away from us, whether we see it or not. That's something that's, we we have to remember, that there is childhood music that's happening, and it's not always what's going on in our classroom. And it's kind of fun to see what's happening
2: You referenced the pandemic earlier. I'm curious if uh, either of you ended up liking and retaining any of the changes that you were forced to make uh, during the pandemic, even once school kind of started to look a little bit more normal again.
3: Most definitely. Um, Carrie and I collaborated a lot during the pandemic, getting things ready, and we learned many tools. um, As a learning platform. Google Classroom for older students, like third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, was a wonderful tool. And Seesaw for younger students, but I know Carrie has done, uh, used the platform Seesaw for even older students, because within Seesaw, there is an ability for students to record themselves. So if they have, say, a composition uh, assignment where they write out a rhythm, or they write out rhythm with a melody, they can just hit record and record themselves. And it was a wonderful way to assess when we weren't all in the same room. But now, being back in person, I'm still setting up my Google Classrooms, my Seesaw. It's not what I'm doing all of the time. It's just another tool that I can use for assessment and the students still really enjoy that, along with a lot of videos. I made a lot of videos instructing students um, and leading in song and I've been saving those videos and using them especially for sub plans. Um, And I have a non-music sub who will walk into the classroom and they'll just be thrilled that all they have to do is pull up the file that I've left for them and press play and there I am leading them and telling them what's going to happen during this class period.
0: You know, before the pandemic, it was really important to me when we were doing folk songs or uh, folk dances or singing games that involved touching, touching hands or linking elbows and those things. And it was a non-negotiable in my classroom. And my kids got to understand that and know that. And that was just something we did in music class. And I didn't have too much pushback after maybe the first week or two of school. Well, since the pandemic, I've obviously had to let go of some of that. And while we still do folk dances and things that involve touching, I do give students an out if they are not comfortable. I'm not going to force them anymore. Um, so I give them alternate things they could do. Instead of touching hands, they can hold hands close to each other. Instead of doing an elbow swing, they can just do a dosey dough that doesn't involve touching. So just giving students some outs and modifications if they're not feeling comfortable.
2: Any ideas for, for what our secondary teachers can be stealing from you?
0: Yeah, well, I love that thought in general. You know, just a focus on music making for the joy of music making and not in preparation for a concert, not in preparation for a contest. I know those are pressures that are oftentimes put on our secondary folks that are not within those teachers. They come from administration and from, you know, the way the program is set up. I do understand that. Um, but if there's any way that secondary, secondary teachers can just emphasize the joy of music making through, you know, musicianship activities, through creativity having students do more composition and creation of their own music and arrangement um, music appreciation activities that just get to the joy of listening to music and loving music outside of school
3: yeah i would also encourage that any secondary choir orchestra band teacher have a conversation or even have a meeting among the elementary middle school and high school People Not just for playing festivals, but also to see that, okay, well, these students have prior training. They're not born at 14. And so it's very helpful to know, okay, here's in general, the students coming into you do have this music literacy already there. And I'm not going to get too specific about something like rhythm syllables or counting using one a two eanda but and i'm not saying don't do that in secondary but why not bridge what they already know if they already have a rhythm system be it ta ti, ti do do day why not take them with that because if students are already Fluent with that language, why not use that and then bridge them into the rhythm counting that you prefer as a secondary teacher? But you know, you could really see them flourish faster musically if you start from where they already are.
1: Can you talk even more about teaching rhythm and what you think secondary teachers really ought to do when it comes to teaching rhythm?
3: Okay. Well, I'm a firm believer that it is better to know how to do it than know what it is so for example i would rather my students look at a quarter note and go oh ta and look at quarter quarter eighth eighth quarter and go ta ta ti, ti ta it's more important that they can fluently speak, sing, play the rhythm, then they're able to sit down and point out, ooh, there's an eighth note, it gets half the beat in this situation. I mean, all of that knowledge is definitely important, but I'm looking for rhythm fluency. And if we give students like specific rhythm syllables, and every time they see 14, four sixteenth notes beamed together, they say ticka ticka, then they can be in a situation where they're sight reading rhythm and all of that just comes out. They can be fluent in speaking, playing, singing a rhythm, um, and they don't have to worry about what beat am I on, what number is attached to this. Now, I've also had pushback on that idea because band, choir, orchestra people have said, well, I want them to know what beat we're on. You know, oftentimes in my teaching, I will stop the class and go, okay. Tell me what measure, what number measure, what number beat is your ticka ticka on in this piece? And they're able to do that because I've broken it down developmentally for the elementary student. And I'm pretty sure they carry that knowledge into their secondary experiences. So when you use rhythm syllables, you're giving them a language instead of giving them a quantitative number system. And I'm not an advocate of any specific rhythm syllables I just say be consistent
2: I love that the message of consistency because I feel like it's very tempting to go to a conference and oh this school has an amazing program they use Takadimi I need to go home and teach Takadimi and three weeks later I've been teaching Takadimi and it's no better and so I think to hear from a couple of veterans like you two that maybe the method in and of itself isn't as important as picking one doing a good job with it and being consistent So that leads into my next question, which is uh, what are some of your top tips for first and second year teachers in particular, those who are just getting started?
0: Well,
3: I would say any first or second year teacher, and let's just face it, I think any teacher would really do themselves a favor by going to PD, going to workshops, maybe going to conferences if they can afford it. The professional development is wonderful, but really you want to find like-minded teachers that you can have these conversations with, because that I think is really what uh, excites you to be the best when you walk into the classroom. I get so much love of my own career by talking through these things with like-minded people. And also it makes you realize that, yeah, you might be an island in your school, but there are people out there who are going through the same thing, might have ideas. So finding your community of people is just so very important. And I also, along with that, it has to be said that people teaching college are doing a wonderful job. They can't adequately prepare you for life in elementary music here in the 21st century. There's something to be said from getting some education from people who are in the trenches.
0: Yeah, and to add to that, too, something that Tanya and I talk about a lot, and it's not a popular opinion, but we're not afraid to say it, is um, to be careful about side hustles. You know, it's so tempting, and we understand teaching is not something that pays well. We know, because we do it, too. But we've seen a lot of very young teachers in their career start. Blogs and TPT stores and podcasts and doing courses, online courses for other teachers. And I think to myself, it's not that I think that that person doesn't have things to offer. That's not what it is. We all have ideas and things to offer. But when I think about myself and my first few years of teaching, I needed to ground myself first. I needed to know my philosophy. I needed to know what worked well with my students before I could ever impart anything to other people. So, you know, both Tanya and I, we didn't start giving workshops and presentations and things till we were well past year 10 in our career so just something to be mindful of that yeah while the money might be tempting in those side hustles and it might seem glitzy and glamorous and get you all the followers on on instagram that it's really about your students first and who are you doing these things for are you doing these things for other educators to help them or are you doing it for the likes
2: Switching to the veteran teachers, I noticed uh, one of my favorite episodes of your podcast was where you talked about tips for teachers who are taking student teachers. Can you talk a little bit about that and what what advice you have?
0: Yeah, so Tanya and I have both had student teachers a few times, and really the most important thing we've talked about is really staying true to our own philosophy and staying grounded in our own classroom and making sure that when that student teacher comes in or, you know, whatever situation a a teacher coming in to help you in any way, that they know that this is what you do and what you teach. and. So like, for example, in our classroom being Kodai-inspired music educators, we are still going to expect that that Kodai philosophy is going to continue throughout that student teacher's time. How exactly they go about it and their own personal style can certainly be sprinkled in, but it's really important to establish that this is my classroom, this is how I do things, and I expect you to do something similar, and if you don't like that, go find someone else to student teach with. Um, And then really gradually release that responsibility, so, you know, Tanya and I both always Come out with schedules that include, you know, the first week they're just observing, and then maybe the second week they've taken on one grade level, or they're even teaching from our lesson plans one grade level. So you're sprinkling in that responsibility of taking on classes and the planning for those classes, as well as opportunities to co plan and co teach. But I never just assume, oh, great, I have a student teacher now, so I can kick up my feet and they're going to do everything and I'm going to sit back and drink coffee. It doesn't work that way. It's a lot of work having a student teacher. It doesn't alleviate the work. It's just a different type of work. So if you go into it with that mindset, that's going to help a lot. Yeah, and kind
3: of to piggyback off of that, but not to contradict it, that once that student teacher is in charge and the teacher in the room, if at all possible, you need to get out of there, mostly because you do not want to be visible to the students, because I've had situations where I thought, well, I'll just I'll just hang in the back just in case. And then those students will look to you like oh come up and ask if they can go to the restroom or look to you to kind of give you a quizzical is this what we're doing and you need to give that ownership of the class over to the student teacher even though it's a little frightening Um, but if that is you know following compliance uh, that needs to happen so that the students see the student teacher as the authority in the room and then once that's happening well, all along the way, it's important for that student teacher to be reflecting on their own practice. Setting up video um, these days is just a wonderful way for students, student teachers, and even you know teachers who are not student teaching anymore to really reflect on what they're doing. They can really look at look at it objectively.
2: Alan and I are just about into one year of our podcast. We're very excited that we made it to twenty episodes. Alan, what what did you say?
1: Most don't make it past seven most podcasts don't make it past the first seven episodes
2: but we pale in comparison to the two of you who are well into the hundreds now uh and i'm assuming that part of the reason you keep going is you're getting some good feedback from your listeners i'm curious if there are some topics or tips or themes that have resonated most with the listeners of your podcast
0: our
3: popular episodes usually happen around this time of year because we put out things about start of year the year specific songs games and activities we might doing might be doing um, classroom management is always a very popular topic although we always circle back to hey if your lesson plan is really solid and if your pacing is good then not like classroom management issues are gonna go away but boy they will definitely be better depending on your, what your plans are uh, so classroom management, specific songs games and activities this time of year we have a lot of younger teachers not not just younger all teachers who are just like okay I'm doing this what it was everybody else doing and they're curious to hear those episodes
0: and feedback that we get and something we pride ourselves on is that we are doing this we are actively teaching still and so i I know listeners especially throughout the pandemic were really appreciative of us just keeping it real and we always start our shows with highs and lows something that's either going really well or something that just didn't work and we're very honest about that and we're very vulnerable about that and i think people that resonates with teachers that we don't have all the answers in fact sometimes we plain ask questions and we get listeners that write in answers which is lovely. Um, we're still learning. We are always learning, which is why we love doing this, because we learn from each other and from our listeners. Um, and then something else that we do a little different um, is in the summertime. You know, we kind of struggled with, well, what do we talk about in the summertime? We didn't want to just take a break. We wanted to keep talking. But what do teachers typically do in the summer? Well, they learn. So we decided to do uh, summer book studies, where we choose a different book each summer. And Tani and I read it. And it's, a, it's an accountability piece for us as well. We always choose books that we haven't read yet and that we wanted to read. It's always been in our list or on our shelf, and now this is our reason to do it. And then we, we talk about it in the episodes, and then we might have some posts on social media where we ask listeners who are reading with us to comment as well. So this last summer we read, this is our first time not reading a music education specific book, just an education book. We read Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. But in our conversations, we talked a lot about, well, how does this apply to the music classroom, which obviously we all know it does.
2: Well, Carrie Nicholas and Tanya Lejeune, congratulations on the longevity and breadth of your podcast and thank you for being with us today. Can we close down with the lightning round on some lighter topics? Love to. Carrie, what's the best place to eat in the Denver area?
0: Uh, Denver is known for Mexican food and Southwestern food and there's a really great restaurant downtown that I love called La Loma. They make their own tortillas, flour tortillas and they're fluffy and fabulous.
2: Tanya, best place to eat in the Denver area?
0: Well, I'm going to
3: kind of um, divert away from just eating. There is a cocktail bar that Carrie and I like to frequent some Fridays, once in a while, Um, and it's in central Denver. It's called the Tatarian. All of the drinks are named after trees, and they often do things like light a cinnamon stick on fire and let it smoke, And, and we're big fans of, you know, seeing things smoke and then drinking them.
2: Carrie, a musical artist, a group or piece of music that you wish more people knew about.
0: Everyone should know about Rhiannon Giddens. She is a fabulous multi-instrumentalist, specializing often in old-time music, roots music, black tradition music in America. Um, She is now artistic director of Silk Road, and she is fantastic. Everything she does is great. Tanya? Well, I'm dating myself here, but that's nothing new.
3: Um, Quite a while ago, David Byrne of Talking Heads put together a record company called Luaka Bop, And that really got me into some Brazilian music that I never would have come across before that. Um, Everything that comes out on that label, Waka is worth listening to. And if you need some kind of inroads towards some music from not your culture, that's a great starting spot.
2: Carrie, if you weren't a musician or teacher, try to imagine it, what career do you think you would have had?
0: I would have to say something that involves like interior design, home decoration, home organization. I just really like making my home cozy and organized and doing that for other people, I think, would find me joy, too.
3: Tanya? That's very challenging. I It's hard to think of anything that's not music or teaching, but this is actually kind of well, definitely music. I think I would DJ because beyond being a musician, I'm mostly a fangirl, and I just want to tell people what music to listen to.
0: She does that for me all the time. She always gives me homework.
1: Music Teacher Coffee Talk is a well regarded, highly reviewed, long tenured, outstanding podcast co hosted by Tanya Lejeune and Carrie Nicholas, who have been our guests today. And it's been great. Tanya, Carrie, thank you, both of you, for spending this time with us.
3: Thank you so much for having us. It's been great. Thanks.
1: You've been listening to Music Ed Insights.
2: Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful
1: and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com.
2: You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website
1: is also the place to find programs program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is
2: sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the co College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. and Let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay
1: relevant. Music Ed Insights.